Okay, well, if you have a Bible, turn to the Old Testament book of Ruth. It's five in Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So it's the eighth book in your Old Testament. And we are digging into this little tiny book. We're about four weeks into our journey. And this morning, we're going to make our way through most of chapter two. So if you have a Bible, turn to Ruth chapter two. We'll begin reading together in verse one. And as we've dug into this kind of ancient tale of tragedy and commitment and redemption, we've discovered something beautiful about who God is. God defines himself by his chesed. It's a Hebrew word that we've learned together as a congregation. Does anyone remember what it means, chesed? What is God's chesed? Yes, loyal love. Yes, it's his extraordinary loyalty. It's his gracious devotion to those who God calls his own. You'll often see it translated in your Bibles as steadfast love or loving kindness. Even in that song, Living Hope, we talked about how his loving kindness, his chesed, broke through the darkness. In Scripture, chesed is the heart of, of God's character. It's what motivates his activity in the world. Now, clarifying question for us, who does God call his own? Well, it's a trick question. God's heart is as big as his hesed is fierce. And if you try to define down who God calls its own, it's like trying to define down who is my neighbor. It's a pointless exercise because God in his grace will keep saying, no, that one too is mine. She is my beloved child created in my image for my good pleasure and purpose. Yet there are times that God has to explicitly state to whom his hesed reaches because he needs us to see past our own blind spots, our own biases, our own kind of tribalism. So let's actually answer the question, who does God call his own? Our God, ours is a God of refuge who spreads his wings of protection over the needy and the marginalized, especially the poor, the widowed, the orphan, and the immigrant. And we're going to see this embodied in our text today through the Israelite practice of gleaning. Has anyone heard that word gleaning before? So we're going to kind of, let me explain what that is by sending us back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10 states this practice pretty clearly. We read from the law, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the immigrants. I am the Lord your God. God is instructing his people to adopt a purposefully inefficient system for harvesting their crops. He says farmers should make one pass and only one pass through their fields vineyards, and orchards. If you drop a choice apple on the ground, leave it there. Let it stay where it lies. Why? Well, God is making a special 
provision for the vulnerable and the marginalized who are living in his land. And gleaning in the Old Testament is really this dignifying public welfare system. It gives those in need of help, those who desperately need food to survive, the opportunity to work for their sustenance. Even if you've lost everything and you have no land, no family, no connections, you can glean. If you're too weak or injured to harvest, you can still probably stoop down and pick up some food off the ground. What's more, gleaning and these other kind of God-created welfare programs took no notice of whether you were native-born or immigrant. All were invited to find survival and life in God's field. And it was this intentional lesson for his people Because Leviticus 19 continues in verse 33. When an immigrant sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the immigrant who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were immigrants and strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So gleaning and other kind of Immigrant embracing social welfare programs in Israel were this explicit reminder from God to his people of their own immigrant heritage, their own national story. They too were once oppressed foreigners living on the margins of society. And in that moment, it was God's chesed that reached them in far off Egypt. Now God has again taken up the cause of the immigrant, the poor, the orphaned, the widow. He calls them his own and he spreads his protective wing over them. And this is significant because we're about to meet a poor immigrant widow who is desperate to glean in the fields of Bethlehem. So let's pick up the narrative starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers, And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So we have this new character who's going to stride into our story this morning. He is a man named Boaz. He's of Naomi and Elimelech's generation. He's a friend from the old days. And the ESV calls him a Gibor Ha'il. He is a mighty man of valor. And that phrase actually encompasses a lot. It means he was this kind of man of bravery and and military prowess in his younger days. But now in his maturity, he is a man of standing, a man of influence, a man of worth. He is, you might say, a man among men. He's this respected pillar in the community. He's from the clan that founded Bethlehem. And his name literally means, in him was strength. 
which is a shorthand kind of reference to a common phrase in Israel, which was, in the strength of Yahweh our God, I rejoice. And this is this man, Boaz. And we read, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, those who were gathering the barley harvest, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, why have I found favor in your eyes? that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. So Boaz comes to the barley field and he instantly notices Ruth among the gleaners. It makes me wonder, is there something striking about Ruth? Could have been her beauty. Naomi had been confident that if she had gone back to Moab, she would have no problem finding a new husband. So maybe Ruth's gorgeous. Maybe it's her boldness and her, her attitude that is so striking. She approaches the foreman and she asks permission to glean not just in the fields but also around the piles of grain as well because she's gathering grain for two and she boldly wanted to ensure that she would have plenty for Naomi to eat as well. Maybe what stood out about her was how diligently she worked. The foreman reports that she's been going hard since morning with few breaks It's also likely that her race or ethnicity marked her as different. We don't know, but maybe the Moabites uh, wore different clothing or different hairstyles, or maybe their complexion made them stand out from the native Israelites. But everyone who speaks of Ruth seems to instantly recognize that she is not from around here. So we're going to spend a lot of time with Ruth in chapter 3. So today I actually want to focus in our attention in on Boaz. He's this great and he's this often overlooked figure. And I want to hold him up as a model. He's an example to us, to any of us who spend any time at all out in the public square. Particularly I find Boaz to be this excellent model for godly business leaders for anyone who hopes to exercise influence or authority out in the workplace. And because we don't often get to talk about 
living our faith out in public, I don't want to miss this opportunity. So let's dig in. How is Boaz a model for a, a godly business leader, for anyone who wants to have influence or authority in the workplace? Well, there's three things that I find particularly praiseworthy here. The first one is this. Boaz demonstrates a rightly formed identity. I am struck by how Boaz invokes the name of God the moment he steps out onto the barley field. Here's the landowner coming to inspect and supervise the harvest, but when he arrives, he doesn't point to himself and say, announce like, hey, look alive, people, the boss is here. Instead, he points upward and says, the Lord be with you. This is not a typical Israelite greeting. This is a greeting and a blessing rolled into one. Boaz is encouraging his workers that God is present with them, blessing all of their effort with a bountiful harvest. And we see them eagerly respond, may the Lord bless you as well. It's this interesting interaction because it reveals that Boaz sees himself as a steward, not an owner. He might be the boss, but he is God's foreman and not the master. Boaz has taken to heart God's words in Leviticus 25, 23, the words that the Lord spoke to his people before they even came into the promised land, into their inheritance. God had told them, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. He's saying the land of Israel does not ultimately belong to the Israelites who live there. At the end of the day, all of these rich fields, they are God's. And Boaz has taken that to heart. He doesn't own anything. This is not his possession to do with as he sees fit. No, the land has been entrusted to him for a season to cultivate it, to put it to good use. And that's why it feels like this joint partnership when Boaz arrives to the field and greets the harvesters. He invokes the name and the presence of the Lord because they are in God's field. And it is God's grace that will ultimately allow blessing to overflow to Boaz, to his workers, to all who are sustained by the land. Now, I grew up the son of a small business owner, and I spoke to my dad about this passage, and he assured me that I cannot overemphasize the importance of a rightly formed identity. He says we have to realize that nothing is ours. It's all a matter of stewardship. And he actually pointed me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, where the Apostle Paul reminds Corinthian Christians that even their bodies are not their own possession to use in the way that they see fit. Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
If even our bodies are gifts that we steward for God's good purposes, how can we imagine that our companies or organizations are somehow ours to run the way we please? And I think Paul will actually go on to address this directly in the book of Colossians. We read this, masters, and I think it's fair to read this in our context as employers. Treat your bondservants, your employees, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have an employer, a master in heaven. God is the master, not you. Get that piece of your identity settled You may have pulled yourself up by your bootstraps, but God is still the star of the show. God in his grace has entrusted you with leadership, with position, with privilege, but you are the junior partner in this venture. You are following the lead and you are under the authority of the true owner-CEO. So Boaz says, I've got this rightly formed identity when I step in to the workplace, into the public sphere. The second thing that we can praise him for is he possesses kingdom-appropriate vision for his business. Boaz sees his business as a vehicle for blessing, not for profit maximization. You know, he knows the story of Abraham in Genesis 12. God has blessed so that we might go out and then be a blessing. God had said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and that in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is the the vision. It's blessing maximization, not necessarily profit maximization. That's why Boaz doesn't balk at God's instruction to run an intentionally inefficient harvesting operation. You might be shocked to hear it, but just because God's word gives all of these instructions about gleaning, uh, there's evidence that not very many Israelites practiced this practice. There's no... Strong evidence that they they abide by God's commands. That's why there's this very real fear of abuse and harassment that hangs over Ruth's decision to glean. Some of Boaz's contemporaries might look at the way he runs his business and say, you know what? That is crazy. Who leaves fruit behind on the ground? There are probably those who say, hey, you know what, Boaz, it would be better if you squeezed every bit of produce out of your fields for you and your family. Then you and your harvesters, you'd be more comfortable. You'd be more protected from the uncertainties of life like drought and famine. Remember that Bethlehem is getting out of this years-long famine. How easy would it be to grasp every calorie that God brought from the fields. But God has a bigger vision of blessing that extends beyond Boaz and his family. It extends even beyond his employees and his shareholders. It extends to the whole community and beyond. Do you notice that 
Boaz mentions other women in his field. There are other poor women from Bethlehem who are already following behind Boaz is uh, the harvesters. They're already there to tie up the bundles, to, to pick up the gleanings. He's already supporting a community of folks in need, his own people. But when he sees Ruth, he doesn't wave her away. He doesn't say, we got no more benevolence here. His vision is the most blessing possible for the most number of people. He does not have a scarcity mentality. He trusts God's provision so there is room enough among them for a desperate immigrant like Ruth. He's got a rightly formed identity. He's got kingdom-appropriate vision. And then the third thing that I think is praiseworthy is he enters the workplace with God-honoring priorities. Even as a businessman, at the end of the day, he is most concerned with reflecting God's character and advancing God's purposes in the world. Our family business, when my dad founded this current company, he called it Integrity Construction Maintenance. That's because when we started the company, he wanted it to be known for one thing, how we conducted ourselves in a very competitive marketplace. No matter whatever other contractors and janitorial companies did, he wanted to be known for reflecting God's integrity out in the world. Yes, their work would be excellent. Their communication would be honest and transparent. Their yes would be yes. Their no would be no. Their conduct would be professional and beyond reproach because that is the character of God. He is a God of justice and honesty and integrity. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Boaz, he has this similar priority He encounters Ruth there in his field, and he sees it as this opportunity to demonstrate to her the true character of the God of Israel, to show her how Yahweh extends his hospitality and his chesed to all who look to him for welcome and refuge. He rewards Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi because he wants her to know that the Lord rewards sacrificial love. He rewards costly devotion. He extends over her his protection and he wows her with generosity because that is exactly what Boaz has experienced himself in the presence of God. Grace. Notice as well, he goes above and beyond. He invites Ruth to drink the water that the young men have drawn. You might not know this, but at the time, the drawing of the water was a job for foreigners to do. They would draw the water on behalf of the native-born Israelites. That's work that is reserved for them. But now Boaz is not asking her to draw water for his men as a condition of her working in his fields. 
he invites her to drink the water that his men have drawn. It's this extravagant honor. And then their, their interaction, it ends with this little fascinating back and forth. Let's pick up the story in verse 12. Boaz is speaking. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In light of the hesed that Ruth has shown to Naomi, Boaz is saying you're deserving of an even greater reward. Even though she's this Moabite, she's this former pagan, Boaz announces that God is going to extend to her his welcome, to say that there is a place for her in his land and in the community of Israel. It's this kind of pious talk to which Ruth kind of responds coyly. She says this in 13, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servants though I am not one of your servants. She has this kind of surprising counterpoint for Boaz. She wants him to realize the integral role that he has played in her experiencing what he announced, God's welcome. Ruth wants him to know how truly unusual his actions were in comparison to others. She wants him to fully grasp his participation in her experiencing God's blessing. It's as if Boaz is waving his hands and saying, this is who my God is. And Ruth is saying, yes, and I know that. I know that because you allowed God to use you as his agent of blessing. Without you saying yes to God's call on your life, to being his man in this community, I have, would have never experienced the life-preserving refuge of God. God could show himself to me because of your willing obedience. Ruth's words leave Boaz stunned and they spark in him a response. I don't know if Boaz had realized fully that the only way that God could work to show his hesed to Ruth was to work through someone like him. Boaz was the tool, the vessel that God required in order for God to act. And when Boaz realizes this, he goes all in. Verse 14, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, hey, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Also pull out some of the, from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah 
of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Ruth heads home with a full belly and 29 pounds of barley. The combination of Ruth's industry and Boaz's generosity that means that only after one day of work, Ruth is returning to Naomi with what is the equivalent of a half month's wages worth of grain. She has experienced God's chesed indeed. And we read in verse 19, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. So we're going to end there today. But what is the message of our text I think Boaz has a lot to teach us about what it looks like to be a person of influence and impact out in the secular world. He shows us the importance of a rightly formed identity, of a kingdom-appropriate vision, of God-honoring priorities. But most of all, I think God through this story, is trying to communicate something to us both about who he is and how he works. He wants us to know that our God is a God of welcome and refuge who extends his hesed to the marginalized, but through us. It is God's design for each of us as his people, as his sons and daughters in the world, to be willing and active channels for his blessing. He can work if we are willing to be faithful and extravagantly used by him. His hesed is made real in the world when we choose to partner with him and live lives of chesed out in the world. This blows me away. God sets up these kind of dignifying social welfare programs to meet the needs of the vulnerable and the marginalized in his land. That is God's heart, God's concern, but it only works if Boaz, when he goes off to work, sees himself as a steward of what he's been given and adopts this vision of maximizing blessing and reflecting God's character out in the world. God's welcome and refuge, his hesed is extended to the poor, the marginalized, the orphan, the immigrant, the widowed, through us. So that leaves a lot for us to chew on. I actually want to send you into the week with two questions to reflect on and to pray about in these days. Maybe you want to write these down or take a picture of the screen. But here are the two questions I want you to chew on this week. In your workplace or organization, in the places out in the world where God has planted you, how might God want to be shifting your sense of identity, your vision for why you're there, your priorities as you are there working and laboring? 
How is God maybe inviting you in the public square to extend his hesed, his gracious devotion, his his unmerited love and care and concern to the marginalized in our community? So think about these questions this week. Process through them. Talk to God about them. And then let's go live it out. Go be God's agent of blessing out in the world. May God's strength be in you as it was in Boaz. So let's pray. Dear God, I thank you that you invite us to be your people, not just here within these walls. But we are your missionaries and your witnesses, your stewards and your representatives wherever we go. God, forgive us for where we have made too strong of a division in our hearts and in our minds, of our public lives and our private lives, of our faith lives and our secular lives. God, you have called us to be whole people, wholly yours in church and in the community and in our families. God, you are doing amazing things out in the world. You are showering people with grace. But let us remember that often you desire for us to be the vessels through whom that grace is experienced. It is not our strength and our power, God, but you do require our surrender and our availability. May we, like Boaz, rejoice in the strength that you demonstrate And trust that sometimes that strength can be demonstrated by the power of your Holy Spirit through us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.